If it's not 140 characters, I can't read it. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and digital patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into a variety of topics on the digital tools, solutions, strategies, and processes that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information and have a little fun along the way. So I'm your host, Chris Boyer, a digital marketing strategist that works with hospitals, health systems throughout the country. You can find me online at, at Chris Boyer, and I also have a website at ChristopherBoyer.com. And I'm joined today by my co-host and friend, Reed. How's it going? Reed Smith. You can find me online at SocialHealthInstitute.com or Reed Smith on Twitter, or you can track me down on LinkedIn. But also, like Chris, spend my days and weeks working with hospitals. And you can find out more about our podcast at TouchPointPodcast.com. But the one thing we're going to ask you to do before we even get started in today's topic is we're going to ask a special favor. We're so happy that so many people have been listening to our podcast. There's so much interest, so much excitement. We've had some great people be part of this. We're going to ask you a little favor to help us out. Go out to iTunes and subscribe to our podcast. And then not only subscribe to it, give us a rating, whatever rating you feel is honest. And then if you could write a really fun review. Now, the reason why we're asking you to do this is because we really want to get this podcast out in more people's ears, so to speak, right? And have more people listen to us. And that's the best way we could do that. Now, Reed, since we asked last week, we had a new review. Yes, we did. It's by someone called Wander Ventures. Here's what they said. They highly recommend this podcast. Listening to Chris and Reed feels like a conversation with friendly colleagues who can chat about the nerdy healthcare marketing topics I care about. I'm excited to see what's ahead for the podcast. Smiley face. That is awesome. And I, and Chris won't say it, but I will. So we need five-star reviews. And if I don't get them, I lose my job. <laughs> I don't know. I thought about that this week. It's like when you buy the used car and the guy's like, listen, you're going to get a survey. And if you don't answer all fives, like I don't get paid. You know, so it's like, what? okay. I don't know what my options are then. I don't know why I'm getting a survey if I have to answer all fives. But but no, seriously, uh, to Chris's point, uh, we certainly appreciate it. And anything you can do is certainly uh, certainly beneficial to us and lets us uh, know how we're doing. And, and we just appreciate it. That's right. We could talk more nerdy healthcare marketing topics to all of you in a friendly, collegial way, I guess. That's right. So, Reed, we got a great episode on deck today. And this is one that I have a personal interest in as well as a professional interest, which is the intersection of wearables and medical devices, which is a hot topic nowadays. It is, and it has been for a couple of years. I can remember three or four years ago now at South by Southwest was when Nike launched the Fuel Band. So since then, in the last several years, that has been a hot topic in the health and med tech programming at South by Southwest is, is always about wearables. And I think we've gotten past the idea of thinking about that only as the, some of the consumer grade products like a Fitbit or a Fuel Band. And now we're looking at you know some more meaningful pieces is, to your point, the intersection between what legacy medical devices have looked like and how they've acted and benefited us. You know, how does that intersect with more of the consumer wearable side? For a long time, the medical device companies have been operating and developing devices with a lot of clinical inputs and patient inputs, etc. They were separate than the consumer market was. Over the last couple of years, we've seen this huge confluence or collision almost of these two markets together, where we're seeing now more and more 
of medical devices starting to adopt some of the consumeristic wearable trends to them. And then conversely, we see more and more of the wearable devices becoming more and more clinical in nature. Some of that is due to the fact that we're to a place where we can see some benefit from it. Not that the med device companies were doing anything wrong, but now they've got the opportunity to really increase the pool of where they get the feedback and the results and things like that. One in six consumers currently own and use wearable technology. And we've probably saw that accelerated when the Apple Watch came out. You know, there's some Android watches, Samsung, for example. Take something that someone already uses. A lot of people wear watches. That's an easy transition. You're not asking anybody to do anything new. It's just a different watch. So it still tells time, still does some of those things. We've added in some more convenience features to that. But then there's a whole health component to it that allow anyone, medical device companies, down to general consumers to develop for that if they have an interest in that. Even your iPhone, before really this this upsurgence of the watch or what have you, your iPhone was able to track the many, your steps and some basic health information. Then we start to see more and more apps being developed like Map My Ride or Map My Run. And now what we're seeing is the movement into this internet of things, this wearable technology. And what's interesting about it is that they predict that in 2017, that we're going to hit over $4 billion in the market for wearables. And what's happening now is wearables are going past just the watch now. They're getting embedded into clothes. They're getting embedded into multiple different things. And really, we're starting to have a world where everything around us can start to sense us and start to communicate with each other. And that provides a huge value to people that are, st- are tracking their health, wanting to take control of their health. Imagine if I could walk into my gym now with my Fitbit and have the gym automatically or the treadmill that I'm on automatically report to my Fitbit my exercise routine, how many calories I burned, how much time I spent doing exercise. These are things that we're going to start to see more and more. You saw Under Armour really make a push into this in the last couple of years with the, they call it the health box, you know, and it came with the scale and some different things like that. They obviously went out and purchased Matt My Fitness, which includes all that suite of products with Matt My Run and Ride and et cetera. Collecting all this data, making us smarter, more in tune to our health. You know, it does open up, I guess, the door for maybe unintended consequences or questions we have to ask. Uh, Talking about South by Southwest, I believe it was last year, I actually went and listened to a program, had a linebacker from the Philadelphia Eagles, but they were talking about all the sensors they put on football players now. And a lot of that's used for television so that they can like go back and show like this guy ran around the field this way and that kind of stuff. But he was like, you know, it records everything that we do. So he's like, who owns that data? Because he said, you know, when I go to get a life insurance policy and that broker calls the Philadelphia Eagles and and they're able to come back and say, well, he's taken X amount of more hits than anybody else on our team. Is that fair? Because we're becoming more and more measured as humans. What does that mean? That is a growing concern. And you're kind of walking that razor where it's like you're getting a lot of good, valuable information if you're out there actively managing your care. But on the other hand, you're getting all this data out there that other people can actually review, understand, and maybe adjust your insurance rates, what have you. We know hospitals are doing a lot of wellness programs where they're starting to distribute Fitbits to their employees to encourage employee wellness and all of these programs. But even working within the hospital when we have these programs initiated, there was a little bit of that concern of, 
wait, why is my employer now going to be, even if though it was a hospital, why are they concerned about this? Is this going to impact my employment? Is this going to impact my insurance rates? Uh, I remember listening to Doug Ullman. He's up at uh, Pelotonia, the organization that's associated with the uh, James Cancer Center there at OSU. He's a three-time cancer survivor. And the first time he got it, he was in college and he had had an email address for like nine months. Like this was in the mid-90s when that didn't really exist. I told him that his cancer was so rare that there were only X amount of people in the country that even had it. And he was like, you know, I didn't care about my privacy if I could have connected with those other folks that were like me. And so he had this comment that I thought was really interesting, which was privacy is only a concern until the benefit outweighs the concern. And I mentioned at that at the top of the show that this has a personal intersection for me. So some of you may know I'm a type 1 diabetic, and I've been testing my blood sugar since I had diabetes at the age of 18. I have a glucometer that I'm using to test my blood sugars, and it tracks, and I can sync it with my computer. I have a Fitbit where I, whenever I go to the gym and I track my steps and I track my, you know, all the exercises that I do, and in general, I'm finding a lot of value of having this health data in front of me because it helps me understand my disease better. Well, the last doctor's visit I went to, I came up and and I showed up and I said, okay, so here's my glucometer. Here's the data from my last six months of tracking my glucose. And then here is my Fitbit data, which I was able to have through my app. And I said, how do we get that into my uh, personal health record? And they had no answer. To them, that's the challenge. These things are all great. They're not super useful in and of themselves, or they're they're marginally useful. They're trends. It would be more beneficial if you could tie all those things together. They could say, you know, you are taking X amount of steps less than you, than you were last year. Let's talk a little bit about some of the medical device trends that we're seeing. I found an article that showed some of the, the major trends. First of all, an increasingly mobile healthcare more friendly, more usable, more easier to interact with with people's lives, not carrying around this big device. And that's true with any technology, right? It's getting bigger, faster, stronger, yet physically getting smaller or more portable. Another trend that they're seeing is that wearable medical technologies are promoting compliance. They're saying that the wearable industry, all this consumeristic wearable devices, Fitbits and your apps on your phone and all this other stuff, is actually promoting better compliance with people that are using medical devices and helping them be healthier. But they see that this consumeristic wearable industry is actually to help improve health overall. The next iteration that we're starting to see, I mean, it exists, and so I think it'll become more and more, is really one step past wearable, and it's the uh, ingestible sensors, you know, smart pills and things like that, so we can monitor compliance around people that need to be taking certain medications uh, on certain days or certain frequencies or, you know, those types of things. Maybe that's where I would draw the limit. I mean, I like my watch, I like my phone, but I also like to take them off certain times. (laughs) I'm not sure I want to have it in my body somewhere. If you think about it in the sense that maybe you're a caregiver of a family member, being able to check and make sure that, you know, mom that lives across the country is following the medication adherence, you know, whatever it is that she's supposed to be doing, maybe gives you a little peace of mind. But to your point, the more we do and the more we surface, the more that's tracked back to that privacy piece. We have all this patient data, we have all of these data inputs, but who actually owns the data? And, and how, do, how can we trust, you know, that this data is going to be safe and secure? How do we know it's not going to be hacked? We don't. I mean, that, that's the reality of it. Uh, you know, at this point in this day and age, privacy is an illusion anyway. 
But we convince ourselves that, you know, we've updated our Facebook privacy settings and we don't buy anything online when we're at the airport or in Starbucks. So therefore we're protected or whatever, you know, that's just not really the case. It's uh, just the nature of where we live. I mean, you can't really function very well now without buying your gas at the pump and swiping your card every time you go somewhere or buying things through your phone or, you know, on Amazon or whatever it is. And so we've already opened that door. And many of the cyber breaches right now in hospitals and health systems with patient data is really not focused on the patient data. It's really focused on the financial data associated with that patient data. I mean, a lot of that, that's where they're trying to get at it. The credit cards, the social security numbers, that sort of thing. To some of that that we see in hospitals is also more the ransomware play. They don't really want the data. They just want to hold it hostage and you know, get money out of the hospital to give them their data back, basically. What, 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 what is news? All right, we're back with the what's news section. Today, talking about wearables, medical devices, the intersection of the two. Chris and I uh, had a great conversation earlier and then want to touch on this article, title being wearable tech has to be really good or really wearable. This is an article that came out on TheVerge.com. Really right as South by Southwest was was wrapping up. This particular article does take into account what different technologists at the South by Southwest Festival, kind of they're, they're weighing in on wearable tech and what they're seeing. I think the point here is that this is also intersecting with the whole concept of usability. If you create wearable devices, it has to be either very useful to you or it has to be very usable. And when you think about usable and useful, those things are very related. A lot of times when you talk about technology, if it helps your life, you need it. But if it also is easy to interact with, you're going to use it. I listened to that podcast, 99% Invisible. And that that comes from the the saying that 99% of good design is invisible. If you design something really well, you don't even notice that you're using it. What's interesting about this is it's kind of furthering the concept of the intersection to be, we have to make it so good that people don't even know we're doing it. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. And I think that's why if you look in this article, she talks a little bit in the beginning, she mentions, and we've mentioned Google Glass already twice in this episode, but anyway... (laughs) But she talks about Google Glass, and she talks about, not surprisingly, this was the only pair of Google Glass that she saw the entire time this year at South By. But a couple years ago, they were everywhere because it was kind of novelty. It was like, holy cow, this is like this superhuman, we got the little screen right in front of our eye, you know, kind of a thing. But was it really good or was it really wearable? And I'm not sure it was either. That's a hard metric. And that's why, again, you go back to the watch and it's like people already wear watches. So that's that's an easier transition. If you start thinking about, I want somebody to stand on a scale. Well, a lot of people already have scales in their bathrooms. So you sort of have to start thinking down this path of how do we get people to just simply update something that they're already doing. In this article, they were talking about wearable technology that, that's so t- technically ambitious that its ultimate form might not matter as much. Trying to integrate LCD technology to read brain activity. Now that that's kind of like science fiction stuff still for me. Putting screens inside helmet. The example here is a skier wearing a ski helmet right? A professional skier wearing a ski helmet. And so many things that you can actually track. 
oxygen flow. You can you have a visor where you can actually have real time feedback to the person to the athlete athlete that's actually using this. You can temper the light that comes through. It can actually sense what the outdoor light is and actually add light or night vision if you're skiing at night. This is pretty far out there stuff. Yeah, there is. And so there's a real use case for that, right? Like that would be useful. This stuff evolves over time. And so somebody has to take that first step, which I think is important to remember. Also mentioned in here is this smart tattoo by MIT's Media Lab. Picture a tattoo like on your wrist that you could interact with, you could touch, and you know, it would provide some functionality you know, or commands back to your smartphone. Well, I mean, do we need that? Is that a, is it too hard to pull our phone out of our pocket? Is that where we've gotten? But then again, you start thinking about small things, even Bluetooth earbuds. And it's like, really? I mean, is the cord that big of a deal? Well, I mean, it is kind of handy. It's like, you know, you don't get tangled up. You don't, you know, this, that, and the other. And so I think somebody's got to take that first step. And so even the smart tattoo, I think is interesting because it's not intrusive. You know, it's just kind of there. It kind of blends in. Plus mainstream adoption is going to be hard. There's some other interesting ideas in here, like a or a t-shirt that you put on that could detect if you have breast cancer. Arguably, if that was passive technology in clothing, that there may be a market for that. No, there absolutely would be, but it's got to be partnered with somebody that already has the market share. So you take a piece of apparel. I don't care how smart the apparel is. If it's not attractive or it's not something somebody would want, they're not going to buy it. It's always like, until Tesla, it's like, why could we not make a decent looking car that ran on a battery? Do they have to be ugly looking? Like, that's just part of the deal? Or like, what's the... And now Teslas are everywhere because it's a good looking car. Some of this technology you'll see, it'll either get purchased by Under Armour, Nike, Levi's. They mentioned a smart jacket, denim jacket in here. You know, it's going to have to be somebody that wants to integrate that into an existing brand or product that's already got wide adoption for it to really be beneficial to the masses. About this Levi jacket, the author tried it on and he made a point. He says, it doesn't have to have a groundbreaking impact on your health or well being this jacket it's still a piece of clothing and if the battery dies i can still see myself wearing this jacket i guess that's where we're at right now with some of this newer far future stuff it's wearable it's either useful or it's wearable in this case a jacket is just wearable it's not obtrusive it's just there and if you have technology in it that's tracking you know whether you're exercising or not that's cool but if it isn't no big deal you know, whenever I thought about Google Glass, we brought it up again. So I always think about it. I wear glasses. For me, there might be some usefulness to it, having a display on my glasses. But if it's going to get in the way of me walking around and it's going to prevent me from doing my normal life and getting the prescription that I need in order for me to see, then what's the point? I think you said it. It's a display in your glasses, not a, not a display on some other weird frame that's like hovering in front of your eye. Google Glass made it to where if you did wear glasses, you either had to wear contacts or you couldn't wear them. The integration into it, maybe they go to a uh, Oakley or Ray-Ban or somebody like that, then that that's maybe a logical path. I will say I did see a lot of Snapchat glasses around South by this year. But those are really gaudy and fashionable and they're, they're you're wearing them for a statement, right? Yeah, I only saw them outside of food trucks. <laughs> it's it's the perfect market, right? Exactly. And that's leaning more towards that wearable side of the equation, right? Either useful or wearable. Back to people that are suffering from chronic conditions that maybe have to have a fibrillator or have to be monitoring their blood pressure at all times. You know, those people, what they want is they want usefulness too. And they'll opt to 
carry around devices that maybe are not that fashionable, you know, three years, four years down the road, maybe we won't see snap glasses anymore because they'll fall out of fashion. But we'll start to see, continually see more and more of the usefulness carry through. And you know, like, like we said earlier, I, somebody's got to go first. While Google Glass, good grief, it's like the fifth mention, I think, in this episode. But, um, <laughs> you know, while Google Glass, you know, turned out to obviously, you know, be a bust, it's probably paving the way, whether we know it or not. Maybe we will know it at some point, but it's paving the way for something that's going to be useful. And I think when we think about usability and technology in the future, tech is always going to supplement the overall care that we're going to be providing, whether it's through a wearable device or through a medical device or the intersection of both. Touch point, touch counterpoint. There are two sides to every story. Ready, fight! Welcome to Touchpoint Touch Counterpoint, the part of the podcast or segment in the podcast where Chris and I take alternate and extreme opposite end of the spectrum views on the topic at hand. This week talking about wearables and medical device, the intersection of the two, all things in between, privacy, adoption, etc. We're going to talk today, we're going to argue about are wearables too young of an industry for hospitals to really care, for, for to really make a difference in healthcare, at least on the provider side. Thoughts? I'll argue for the point that it is too young of an industry. I mean, this is so new. There's not really good useful data that's being gathered by these things. And there's so many different data points. It's just not usable or actionable for hospitals and health systems right now. That, unfortunately, (laughs) is what we always do. That's always our point. Whether it's CRM, whether it's marketing automation, whether it's something. We we as an industry always want to let somebody else die on that hill and not look for the usefulness in the technology. I think because it is a young industry, we've got a a way and, and the ability to work with the developers and work within the industry to really shape this into something that could be truly beneficial. And if we wait, then we're going to let too many other corporate players get involved and we've lost our opportunity. Look, I am just trying to spend all my time getting my EMR up to speed, making sure the patient actually is showing up at appointments, why am I now suddenly going to be inundated with all of this data from like, I, you know, I don't really care if they get on the scale every day. I don't, you know, I'm not really caring about how many flights of stairs they walk every day. That's not going to be useful. I need to, I need to make sure as a hospital and health system that we have a compliant patient data record that we can actually do something with. Well, and I think this helps you do just that. So I think even if even if we start out with pilots and certain opportunities with certain physicians, certain service lines, and build that model, then that allows us ultimately to get so much further ahead. And again, get partners involved that can really help us in the wearable space. And then that bleeds into other HIT activities as well. This is a slippery slope, my friend. I mean, once we start tracking how many times they go to the gym, then what are we going to track next? See, like, how, what, what type of food they eat? What, are we going to track like, you know, how many times they, they buy this type of cereal versus this type of cereal? I, or, or if they eat gluten-free? I mean, look, this is a never-ending slippery slope 
we're never going to get that all that data right. It's not going to be actionable for us. Well, I think this is ultimately how we get to more of a well care system. So we're actually doing things that benefit the patient over the long haul because now we're getting data from their entire you know, day-by-day life versus the 16 and a half minutes we spend with them three times a year. Right. Okay. I, I get that point. I really get that point. But on the other hand, I don't want to get trackable data of 24 hours of their lives. It's not going to be useful for me to know that they had a bowel movement at 6 in the morning and that they went to bed at 11 o'clock at night. I mean, that's not going to be useful for me. I don't need that every day. Did you say went to bed or wet the bed at 11 o'clock at night? (laughs) This is just one of those things that this is the direction we're going. I mean, everybody's already wearing you know, wearable devices. So let's maximize the value of them and actually get some benefit out of what that they're, you know, what they're providing, what they're allowing access to. I didn't mean to bring this back up, but I'm going to have to bring this back up. Not only is that like, do we not have enough time to do that, but how do we know that the consumer is actually tracking the right things? Sure. Okay. Yeah, sure. The Fitbit tells me that they go to the gym every day, but what, how do I know that they're just not walking around, like flexing their muscles in front of the front of the mirrors and tracking that as a gym activity? The, consumer doesn't really know exactly. We have to give them the ability of this is what we want to measure. Well, I think that's where getting in early helps because now we're able to work with the developers and designers to make this stuff useful and not something that's just, you know, interesting, that there's actually some real benefit. I'm having trouble arguing this any further, Reed, because I, I, I get, I mean, I get both sides of the extreme argument here. But, you know, for me, it's like, I think that there is value. Again, being a person that suffers from a chronic condition, I see value in this. So it's hard for me to take the extreme. Yeah. I get it. I get it. It's hard. Like most of these topics, you know, the reality is somewhere in the middle. You know, I mean, that's that's obviously the, the whole point of what we're doing. But uh, I do understand, you know, the pushback uh, in the sense that, we don't have enough staff, time in the day, et cetera, et cetera, to even do what we're doing now. And it is. It is a young industry. But I think, you know, this is something that, you know, could really be beneficial over the long haul. So. Okay, welcome back. We are now uh, in the segment of the Ask the Expert segment of the podcast, and I have a very special guest, someone that I have known for many years and who is, I would characterize as a pioneer in this space, Dana Lewis. Dana, nice to have you here on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Chris. So, Dana, I have been following you since the very, uh, almost seems like the advent of when Twitter came around. We were some of the early adopters talking about health and Twitter. I remember one of the very first Twitter hashtags was one I participated in, which is the one that you started, Healthcare Social Media. Yeah, it's hard to believe that it's been eight or nine years since we first started that, and Twitter's just a little bit older than that. But we've both come a really long way since then. But as probably you know as from your work with hospitals, um, in some cases, it doesn't feel like we've come all that far. Yeah, that's so true. Sad to say it is true. But Dana, you have led a very interesting path since then. Why don't you tell people a little bit about your background and what you're doing now? 
Sure. And I want to start by giving a little context for how I came to actually create that hashtag and that conversation, because I actually created Hicksum or HCSM back when I was a college undergraduate. I was studying public relations. I knew I wanted to go into healthcare communications. And I started using Twitter to reach out and talk to people like you and Liazi at Mayo Clinic and have conversations about how our hospitals actually using this newfangled social media thing. Um, but I was asking the same questions to the same people over and over again and realizing it would actually be beneficial for them actually out in the field to talk with one another. And that's really how this healthcare hashtag Twitter chat was created. Um, the first one, not many people know this, we actually had just three or four people in a Google chat. Um, and we had a little G chat and said, you know, we want to make this publicly available. We think this hashtag might help us thread the conversation. So let's go over next week and try it. And that's really how this chat was born. Um, but because of that, that's actually what led me to get my first job out here in Seattle. Um, my then boss, Melissa Tizon, had been on Hicksum, had seen what I was doing and said, you know, we really want somebody to come out here and help our hospital go digital. You know, a very common thing. But we specifically want you to help doctors connect with patients online. I've been a patient. I've been working in the space. And she said, you know, blank slate, let's figure out how to do it. So I actually came out to Swedish. It's a nonprofit health system here in Seattle and spent four or five years in a number of roles focusing on getting the organization connecting with the community, whether that was social media, not just for marketing, but for customer service and improving engagement in health, sharing health information, and also thinking about how does that translate to other things? What happens when you can use it for education? What happens when a patient comes into the ER? Or what happens when a patient tweets in and says, I think I'm having a stroke, what do I do? How does a hospital use digital to deal with all those situations? So that's really where my career started and has continued. But I've always had a deep interest in the technical side of things, both personally as well as professionally. So I've also spent the, the later years of my career working in analytics around social media. So not just you output stuff, but really how do you measure your impact and how do you use that data to decide what to do next and what's working and what's not? So I've done a lot of that. And then I've also more recently been spending time directly in the patient community working on do-it-yourself technology called the open source artificial pancreas system, which means I not only built my own artificial pancreas, but I also found a way to make it open source and share it with other people. And I'm interested in helping healthcare organizations figure out how to leverage patients who are so motivated that they are building their own medical devices. Digital, I've always believed, even when we were talking on Twitter many years ago, was an ability to, to draw a connection between the provider, between the patient. But you have taken this to a whole nother level. It's not just the pancreas, right? There's a whole movement associated with this. What you'll most commonly see now is the we are not waiting movement because you have to recognize that every patient has caregivers and a support system around them. And it's not always rebelling against the healthcare system. It's the healthcare system is traditionally working on this problem. And there might be a solution in a year, three years, five years, but I have a problem tonight and today. So how can I take the technology available to me that I can buy on Amazon, that I can find open source on the internet and how can I put it into use right now today this weekend when I have time to improve my quality of life and what's interesting to me is some people see that as rebellion I don't see it as rebellion it's a I'm going to solve this problem right now and there's so much of this that is being given back open source and that's means not just to other patients but to doctors to the traditional companies, to the healthcare organizations saying, take this, make it better, make it shinier, make it work for more people. And there's a really big disconnect right there because of the risk perception, the fear of 
you know, whether it's it's HIPAA or liability or regulation, there's a lot of these things built into our traditional system that is just a full-blown block in preventing some of this collaboration. And I think that's what we have to solve. We have to find how do we leverage this amazing technology and innovation? How can it be applied across the hospital, across the healthcare organization? How can we use it to help more people? Because at the end of the day, yes, these patients are e-patients. They're highly motivated. They care about helping other people. But nine times out of 10, they have a day job. They love their day job. They just want to live their life. This is not about creating a company, although sometimes patients do go off and do that. But a lot of times they just want to make it better for other people. And as a healthcare ecosystem, we have to stop preventing them from being able to do that and stop putting barriers in their way and figure out how to work together. Some people see it as hacking, but I often see it as building bridges and building interoperability that is missing in the medical devices. Because if you think about it, in in the diabetes space, for example, there are a few companies that make insulin pumps. There are two main ones right now in the US that distribute continuous glucose monitors. But if you want to choose a pump from one that doesn't work with the CGM, that's just before you just had to accept it. And if you wanted that CGM, you had to pick one of these pumps or vice versa. But what patients are doing is saying, this data should be freely flowing in between my devices. And if the device manufacturers aren't going to do interoperability well, I'm going to do it myself. And I'm willing to carry a small, you know, tic-tac case size box in my pocket to, to allow me the choice between the pump and the CGM and an open source algorithm. And so I really want people to get the, the hacking word, the negative connotation of that out of their mind and think about it exactly as you said earlier, which is building bridges for the data and building bridges for tools to work together to really help solve a problem for the person. And I think the other thing to consider is, you know, I absolutely respect the traditional device manufacturers. They are doing a very important job. However, Historically, they've been built to to build a device that is, uh, you know, tested, regulated, and marketed for a one size fits all. But that one size fits all device may not work for me and my lifestyle. So, how do we get these device manufacturers to make something that is flexible enough so that I, as the end user, can turn the knobs and tweak it and get my data the way I want it and the way it is going to be useful for me and my life and my living situation? And at another level, I know hospitals are struggling with this. If a patient comes in with a ton of real time track data. How does the doctor have time or the skills to review this? You know, how does this data go into the medical record or not? How much of it? What level? There's so many problems around that. But instead of just saying we can't deal with that problem and just ignoring it and hoping it will go away, I think the solution is to have active conversations and to pilot and to test. Here's different ways to surface and share and record the data and use patients who are actively doing this every day and looking to them for solutions and not just looking to the traditional companies and startups to provide the solutions that may or may not work for the ultimate end users, which are the doctors and the patients. However, trying to put ourselves in the shoes of the healthcare individual, the people that are listening to this podcast, to them, that's utterly terrifying. If you think about 10 years ago when we were eight, nine years ago when we were on Twitter, that was terrifying. Now, what you're talking about (laughs) is you're empowering patients to not only take control of their health, to be active members of their health, but now even cobble together solutions to solve their health. How do you see this impacting, you know, hospitals, health systems? You know, I see a lot of parallels back to the conversations we first had about healthcare organizations, hospitals being on Twitter. And most people nowadays pretty commonly agree, it's better to at least be listening and watching and seeing what's going on so you can be aware and prepared for it, even if you're not ready to fully dive into the deep end and talk to patients online. I see the same thing happening, which is patients are out there coming up with ways to view and utilize their data in real time, they're going to be coming into the ER with it. 
how do your emergency room doctors and nurses deal with these devices? Do they turn them off and ignore them and jeopardize care? Do they engage with them? You know, what happens for the primary care doctors? How do they deal with these tools? You know, how can a hospital listen in at a population health level and watch trends for what's happening in their community with this track data? Um, I think the same kind of learning path applies, which is if you stick your head in the sand, that is way more scary because you have no idea what's going on. But I would challenge those working in hospitals and healthcare organizations to start thinking about, okay, what was our path to starting to listen and work in social media? What was our comfort level? What was our trajectory? How did we collaborate with people across the organization to get on board with this? How did we fully embrace becoming a digital organization? Some people are still on that journey, but that same kind of journey applies to thinking about engaged patients and those with you know, Fitbits or other types of trackers and devices. Some patients like you, you might, I don't know if you look at your Fitbit data, you might just be tracking it in the background. Well, that may not be relevant for you, but it could be super useful on a population health level if your data is contributed to that. And so kind of understanding the different types of data too. What is really, really useful and important for a patient in real time? What is useful or not to a doctor in real time? And what is useful for a population health level? But then also thinking about who in our organization is trained and equipped to do that? Do we have the kind of people in an individual doctor's office or at the hospital level who are able to think and use data and use that to help change our organization? This might be another new role that comes up is a data scientist um, or somebody wearing the data hat who can and look at this and think about how it changes, just like there was social media people or digital people being added into the organization over the last decade. Okay, I'm in. Totally in. I'm <laughs> all in. So uh, how do I and other people that want that are listening in, how do they get in to learn more about this? How can people do that and get in touch with you? So I am ironically, or not surprisingly, most commonly found on Twitter. So I'm at Dana M. Lewis on Twitter. There is an open APS hashtag that I encourage you to check out because there's people, kind of the average users who are sharing a lot of their lessons, learns and experience with this. And then there's also the we are not waiting hashtag. I invite anybody to reach out. I'm happy to have a conversation with anybody about how this might apply to their organization or ideas, things like that. But also don't be afraid to go in and lurk and just kind of soak up and see what kind of people are talking about. What are their frustrations? What are their successes? I think there's a lot of learning that can still be done from lurking in these social media platforms. And patients, again, are basically saying, please listen, listen to this, learn from this, take it and apply it. However, will help your organization, your population. That's awesome, Dana. Well, this has been extremely exciting, I would say, and a great informative interview. Thank you so much for sharing all your expertise. Thanks for having me. And thanks to you and Reed for continuing to share this conversation with healthcare organizations. All right. So this brings us to the end, or almost the end, of episode nine Episode nine, nine weeks into this thing. Um, thank you all again. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, those have been uh, faithful listeners and have joined us along the way. We certainly appreciate the support. Be sure to go to iTunes and subscribe, rate, and review. You don't know what that means to us. I uh, did want to talk for just one second about uh, something that we're pretty excited about, uh, which is our first time to actually record this podcast from the same room. So we will physically be in the same spot recording a podcast in the near future. Chris, won't you fill everybody in on that a little bit? Well, that's this is going to be at the Forum Conference in early May. We're looking forward to that. 
And moreover, we're going to have the ability to do this in front of a live audience. That is, there's going to be a room dedicated for us. We're going to have some uh, special guests, some previous ASCII experts that are going to be part of this. We're going to do very much have the live recording and even get audience interaction. The details are still being evolved. Uh, We'll probably have more by next week. In next week's podcast, we'll talk a little bit more about this. But we're really excited. And we're going to be there also recording you kind of on the street, talking to people as we go through. But there's going to be an event. And more than likely, there's going to be alcohol involved too, Reed. So that's going to increase our audience size. Increase our attendance. So to your point, next week, we're actually going to dive a little bit deeper on a topic that I, at least I get asked a lot about from hospitals, for example. What what are good conferences? Where should I go? And not so much, we're not going to get into you know which one we think you should attend, but we're going to talk a lot about what makes a good conference, what to look for when you attend, networking, etc. So next week should be an interesting one, and we'll obviously talk a little bit more about the details of what we'll be doing in the first part of May here in Austin at the uh, Forum for Healthcare Strategists. So, Reed, now we get into our recommendations. What's your recommendation this week? I am going with a piece of hardware, not another microphone. I could do another (laughs) microphone, uh, but I'm not going to. So I have uh, one of the newer MacBooks, which has the USB-C ports, I guess is maybe the best way to say it. And so I like to carry around a portable hard drive as there's times I need to grab a bunch of video or something like that from a colleague or whatever it may be. And so I carry around a little portable hard drive just uh, as kind of a backup. And I bought one and it's super, super slim. And we'll, again, obviously have links to this in the show notes, but it's uh, a G drive, a mobile USB-C hard drive is a terabyte. Storage has gotten so cheap over the last several years. This is a great one. Fits in my bag really, really well. I uh, forget it's even there. And it's uh, not much larger than a wallet. I mean, it's it's pretty, or a credit card case. It's, it's really little. I've been really pleased with it. It uh, doesn't require external power or anything like that. And it's a USB-C. You know, Reed, it's funny. You, you tend to recommend things that I'm right in the market to get. I was actually starting to look at uh, external hard drive uh, for my new MacBook as well. What a great thing. Uh, we, should, you, we should create like an, uh, a touchpoint point podcast uh, Amazon affiliate account or something. Yeah, exactly. Matter of fact, just click through on our website. They very well may be affiliate links next time you go there. So, so my recommendation is going to be something that for those of you who may follow me, my fiance tweeted out about the fact that I have this now new obsession with stickers on iMessages on the Apple. I'm an, I'm an iPhone user and there's a lot of commercials that are on TV now about using stickers. And for those of you who may or may not have know what these are, it's like the ability to kind of add to your text messaging with pictures, with funny images, with funny reactions. It's almost like taking emojis to a whole nother level. And Apple has introduced this, this whole concept of stickers and a marketplace where you can actually go in and pull all these different types of stickers and, and, and do different types of things. Now, I like the fun aspect of it. You can add in giphys. You can add in funny things. I like the creative aspect to it. A lot of artists are getting in there now creating sticker packs that you can either get for free or you have to pay a little bit to get to it. One, of the, one interesting side note about two years ago, I came up with this concept that I wanted to create uh, hipster emojis emojis based on hipsters well guess what there's a whole sticker pack now that basically lifted my idea but you know what it was fine i i went ahead and got it and reed tell you what why don't you send me a picture of yours via text message and i'll sticker it up with some of the hipster emojis and we'll put it out on our website so people can see what i'm talking about awesome but there is one other thing about it that i really like now apps are starting to create sticker packs now 
I thought that was interesting. I'm like, what do you mean? The New York Times has one. Tripcase, which I use when I go traveling, has one. And I was like, what are the stickers that they're offering now? What it is is actually ability for you to pull out very quickly relevant information. So with New York Times, it's like a sticker that's about a news article. We think about it, right? We go into the app and we we try to grab the, you know, the article and maybe we tweet it out. Maybe we want to text it to someone. But now you can, through the sticker pack, pull the most recent article. Tripcase, which is where I track all my travel, you can actually pull out a sticker that shows what your travel schedule is for that day and very quickly send it to your friend or someone in, in iMessage very easy. So again, bringing an easier way to get information from one thing to another, the stickers are really kind of cool. Not only are they fun, but now they're getting some information. Where do people get those? Be on an iPhone, go into your message, and there's a little arrow right next to your message screen. And if you have stickers, they're under the little, it looks like a little A symbol. You go in there, and if you have them installed, there's a whole bunch of them that are installed there. If you don't, what you can do is you can actually go into the four boxes down below, and you can actually pull out sticker packs. You can actually get sticker packs. So Yeah, that's cool. So it looks like the categories include entertainment, food and drink, games, lifestyle, photo, video. But then the stuff that, like Chris was mentioning, there's a productivity and travel uh, category of stickers. And so you see all kinds of cool stuff in there, even you know, Dropbox and all kinds of stuff. So uh, very cool. I've checked that out. All right, Reed. Episode 9 is now officially in the can. Wearables and medical device intersection. Lots of good stuff that we talked about. Had a lot of great articles. We, get to, we had a good interview with Dana Lewis, a good old friend of ours. We've known since way back when. There's just a lot of things going on. I have a feeling we're going to probably be doing many more of these uh, related to this topic as, as the market evolves. Absolutely. And again, he is Chris Boyer. I'm Reed Smith. This is Touchpoint Podcast. Find us at touchpointpodcast.com or on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. Until next time, 